This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radiolab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. James McBride's new novel opens with a skeleton found in a well. We're in a small town in Pennsylvania in 1972, and then the book travels back in time to the 30s to solve the mystery. <laughs> it's just about a little town in Pennsylvania where, where this Jewish woman takes in this black deaf boy, and the waves of activity that follow show us what America was and should be. The deaf boy is known as Dodo, and the Jewish woman who takes him in is Chona Ludlow, and she runs the shop that gives the novel its title, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. McBride's been writing about these themes since his 1996 memoir, The Color of Water. His book, Good Lord Bird, about the John Brown abolitionist uprising, won a National Book Award, and it became a miniseries for Showtime. James McBride spoke the other day with Julian Lucas, a staff writer for The New Yorker. Here's Julian. Anyone who knows your work knows that you love to write about communities, whether that's uh, John Brown's army marching through the South uh, or the projects in Red Hook, which you fictionalized in your last novel. Uh, And in this one, we have the black and Jewish immigrant community of Chicken Hill in in Pennsylvania. So I wonder if we could start by just talking a little bit about that community, how you came to be interested in it and and to write a book set there. Well, the truth is I was really, I really wanted to write uh, about this camp I used to work at outside Philly that uh, dealt with, uh, that we, we took care of, we took care of, we learned from disabled children. Mm. And the guy that ran the camp was a, a Jewish guy named Cy Friend. And this is in the 70s when I was in college. And it was a life-changing experience for me. And then um, I've always been interested in, you know, Jewish life because of my own history, because my mother was Jewish and so forth and grew up in a small town. So, um, and Pennsylvania seems like a pretty good place to, you know, to spend time. So I started driving around Pennsylvania. And then um, I looked on a map and I saw Pottsville. It was not far from Pittsburgh. And then um, I drove out that way. And as I was driving out that way, I know I noted, you know, on my I have one of those maps that you open up. I saw Potts Town. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful town. Mm-hmm. And so I did my usual bit, you know, monkeying around with the library and talking to people and stuff, and going to the historical society. And, and I heard this name Chicken Hill bandied about. 
And then, uh, you know, I found the format to work the story of community. Uh, this is such an ingeniously plotted novel, almost like a, a Rube Goldberg machine in, in the way that uh, rescuing Dodo from the institution uh, summons all of the different forces of this community. And, and, and somehow almost every single person is involved, whether they know it or not. Uh, so I, I wonder how you plot your work. Do, you, does it, does, do your characters tell you where they're going or do you have a kind of grand scheme ahead of you when you begin? Mostly in my books, I guess, if I have to analyze, the characters lead the way. I draw a big circle in my office, and I just put each character there, and then I draw a line, and I, I connect them. And then make sure, now how are they going to connect? I used to do A, B, C, D, and then I just, after a while, I just, now I just do the circle, and I just put all the characters in the circle. And they got to connect some way. Hmm. Always connect. Well, everything in life connects, you know, if it's right. You know, what happened was, I spent years trying to write this book about the camp. It wasn't happening. I spent more years researching, and I still came up with nothing. So I'd do it for a while, and then I'd quit, and I'd do it for a while, and I'd quit. It's just research, research, you know, reading, looking, going to places, and so forth. What happened was, when Moshe became real, I just put him on the page and let him go. And then Chona arrived. And I knew I wanted to get, you know, a kid in this, in this couple's lives. Then the plot started, then the, the road started to open more. So the characters in this case, and I think it's probably all the, that way happens. I don't know. I don't, when I, if I analyze it too much, I lose my, lose my <laughs> mind. But I mean, basically the characters start to open, the, you know, they, they create the path. In this kind of big, raucous American novel that has people from so many different backgrounds, uh, Doc Roberts is this, you know, thinks he comes from a Mayflower family, kind of old line white man of Pennsylvania uh, who, who resents the way that the area is changing, is a Klansman, and, and is probably the second biggest antagonist in the novel. And yet you really do get into his head in, in several chapters. You, you uh, give an almost empathetic description of, of the town that he misses, where everyone knew each other and went to the Presbyterian church. What was it like getting into the head of, of uh, a character like this who, who really is afraid that his people are going to be replaced and who reacts very badly to that? Well, I mean, I'm a black man. I grew up in America, so I don't need to... I mean, I've witnessed this kind of thing all my life, you know. I've seen, I've seen what one of those guys does when he becomes president. So it's not hard to kind of get into that person's head. Um, what, what's important is to show there's some sympathy and some empathy for that person because Doc happens to be disabled as well. And, uh, but I guess the only thing I really have a little bit of disdain for in my book and in my life is this whole business. I'm, I'm like one of the 14 people that arrived on the Mayflower and number 14. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, I mean, I mean, I had enough of that. Mm. I wanted to point that out without pointing it out. I, I laugh quite a bit at the moment where you have a, a dance that you describe as uh, 19 mountain people whose 14th cousin arrived on the Mayflower, and their <laughs> band sounds like boneless, noise-producing junk mongers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Uh, I mean, you know, that's that's about as deep as I go. That's about as deep as I poke it, you know, at them. You know, I mean, some of that music's good, you know. It's just that we all don't want to go clogging, you know. I mean, some <laughs> of us just want to dance if we can, you know. I mean, 
truth is, I, I dance like a white guy with, you know, with one finger in the air and, and a beer in the, in the other hand. So it ain't like, you know, I'm that cool either, but, <laughs> you know. Author James McBride talking with The New Yorker's Julian Lucas. We'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hi, I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It seems like you're interested in characters who their religious faith or their religious background inspires them to go beyond themselves, not to stay locked in a particular community, but to take their tradition and, and see how it connects them to, to others. Inspires them to kindness, you know, and wisdom. Because those things last, you know, hate is, hate takes too much. And it, hate is like, a, you know, diesel and it just gobbles up fuel. But love and kindness just float like, just float like, it's like, they just float like clouds. They just go out, you know, it's easy. Um, so I was, my characters, including John Brown, are characters who are driven by love. They're driven by the need for justice. I'm not one of them kind of guys who writes who creates characters and runs them up a tree and throws cans at them. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, ain't, I ain't interested in it. I want to read a book that makes me feel good about being alive. I just ain't that smart. I, wanna, I just wanna, want good things to happen. I'm not interested in bad. If I want the bad things to happen, I'll just read the New York Times or the Post, you know, the Washington Post. I'm not interested in that. I want a book to take me to a place that I like to be. I wonder, how did you become a writer? Man, that was a mistake. What happened was, <laughs> I, you know, when I left, when I got out of Oberlin, I, I applied to Columbia because I was into social change. When I was at Oberlin, we went to this whole thing at the vest, you know, Nelson Mandela, you know, he was in prison mm -hmm. and so forth. 
and I was, you know, I got like active. And so I became, a, I wanted to become a journalist because I wanted to change the world. You know, you see how that worked out. But, you know, I ended, <laughs> up, <laughs> I ended up at Columbia. Then I, I went to the Wilmington News Journal. From there, I went to the Boston Globe and then to People Magazine. You know, I covered Michael Jackson exclusively for six months when I was at People. Oh, wow. But when I was in Boston, I didn't like Boston at all. Mm. You know, I came there like, you know, right after the busing thing. And, you know, I mean, one of the first stories I did at the Globe, I went out and this cat, they sent me out to do a story about a priest in in the South End. Mm-hmm. And I knocked on the door. I had a big afro. This was before cell phones too now. Mm-hmm. I knocked on the door. I said, excuse me, miss. I said, I'm, I'm named, my name is James McBride from the Boston Globe. And she said, she said, <laughs> this is the first thing out of her mouth. She said, Get out of here. I said, <laughs> I, said, I said, but I'm from the Boston Globe. She said, I don't care where you're from. Get out of here. So, <laughs> so, so she slammed the door. So I, I went down to the payphone and I called the paper and I got the city desk. And I said, and I didn't know who the city desk editor was, you know. So I said, hey, this is, you know, my name's James McBride. I'm in the living section. And I, I'm supposed to be interviewing this father, Father Walsh, and this lady's calling me names. The guy said, oh, she's calling you names, huh? Okay, well, go back to work. And he hung the phone up. And wow. I, so then I called, I called the, the parish. I called the minister, the, the priest. I got someone on the phone. I said, I'm coming to, coming to see you. So I got him on the phone. And he said, oh, come on down the street. So I went back to the street and knocked on the door. And when he opened the door and saw me, he said, oh, my God. He said, oh, my God. He said, I'm sorry. And he, what, what happened was, you know, they had sheltered this lady or something. And, you know, she just happened to open the door. And, uh, and he turned out to be a great cat. His name was Father Waldron. He was a wonderful man. I hope he's still alive. Wow. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, that incident, it, it sort of was like it set up my life, my time in Boston. I felt Boston was, you know, I felt Philly was a much better place, man. So what you're saying is that woman saved you from both Boston and journalism. No, she taught me a lesson. She taught me the lesson she taught me was that, you know, while something terrible can happen, you know, just stay with it and something beautiful will happen. I mean, I knew Father Waldron for years. I talked to him maybe four or five years ago. So if, if I had walked away and said, the hell with it, I'd have never gotten this opportunity to meet this guy. You know, I would get on the subway. When I was on the subway with my mother one time when I was little, I just... These people started calling her names, these guys, and they, and they were calling, you know, look at her with those and all that. And later I asked, I said, Ma, you know, why you let them call you, you know, why? You? She said, their names can't hurt me. Did you do your math homework or not? I mean, did you do it? I mean, she just was not, she would, she just discarded what was negative. And my, my siblings and I are the same way. We, we laugh about this stuff. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it's just a passing moment. Just go ahead and. Do what you have to do. Now, I mean, some of your your listeners are going to, you know, get upset because they use the N-word, blah, blah, blah. Look, let's get to the business of making this country better. Novelist James McBride speaking with staff writer Julian Lucas. You've also been a musician for many years, so, so we wanted to play one of your compositions and uh, ask you a few questions about it. All right, go ahead. Winter is here, so Kwanzaa. Is now celebrating joy and love as a happy family. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Kwanzaa. Love and peace. Oh 
So, so not a lot of people have worked with both Spike Lee and Barney in this world. Man, don't mess with my man Barney now. That's my man. <laughs> McBride's new novel is The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. And you can read Julian Lucas on books, art, music, video games, and all kinds of good stuff at newyorker.com. I'm David Remnick, and that's the New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Toon Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Rita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. <laughs>